0: We are going to continue our series in Genesis. If you turn to Genesis 2 in your Bibles, uh, Genesis 2 is easy to find. It's the first book of the Bible in the Old Testament. You'll find it right there. And we are going to be looking at the second half of Genesis 2 this morning and then coming back next week to see the, the purpose of why they're placed in the garden uh, next week as we look at the first half of Genesis 2. But before we actually look at the text, let me make a comment that I think is very important before we talk about the subject matter this morning in Genesis 2, and it's this. One of the things that's important to remind ourselves before we actually look at the text of Genesis is that before creation, before even one molecule existed, uh, behind all of creation is love. Uh, Christianity is the only Religion, uh, only kind of confession of what reality is that says at its core, behind and before all of reality is love because God is one God who has always and eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally loving each other and rejoicing in one another. So that's behind and before all of creation. Creation being the beginning of the story, the climax of the story of scripture, is the greatest display of love ever known. Jesus himself dying for our sin on the cross. So the climax is love. And I think Jonathan Edwards is right when he talks about the end of the story, the new heavens and the new earth. He says it will be a world of love. And so as we look at Genesis chapter 2 and see some of the ways he designed us as male and female. Some of the ways that he designed marriage and for husband and wife to interact, all of that is driven by a God who behind and before all of creation is love, whose climax of his story is love and grace and mercy, and whose end of the story is a world of love. It's that God who is creating and designing all things In Genesis 1 and 2. With that being said, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to start this morning in verse 7 to give us some context of Adam being created. And then we're going to move to verses 18 and following. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Verse 18, if you move there. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And brought her to the man. Then the man said, Understand this, the first poetry and song in Scripture. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. And we're not ashamed. The reading of God's word, which he has given to you because he loves you and he wants you to know him. Let's pray. Father, in and through this text, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, help us understand the profound mystery of Christ, the bridegroom, and his love for his bride, the church. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen maybe seated. I want to look at three things this morning. It really is. We we talked about how if you if you read Genesis one, the rest of scripture says that not only is God singing as he creates, but also all of the angels as well. So you can hear music and song and joyful delight. I would say the text that we read this morning, you could you could probably hear wedding bells, that the time for the wedding has come as Genesis 2 arrives on the scene. So we're going to be looking at the bride and the groom. Then we're going to look at the wedding day. And then we're going to look at the marriage. The bride and groom, the wedding day, and then the marriage. So let's look first at the bride and groom. We see this in verse 7 and then verses 18 through 23. You can see first that the bride and groom, simply but deeply put, are made by God. They are made by God. You can see this in verse 7. Uh, Here's one of the things with Genesis 2. We get a closer, more intimate view of creation than Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is kind of from, from an exalted viewpoint, talking about the transcendence of God. Genesis 2 comes on the scene. It narrows down to day 6 and shows how God isn't only a transcendent creator, but he gets his hands dirty, as it were, to be intimately involved with his creation. Notice in verse 7 it says, Then the Lord God formed the man... Of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. It's really portraying God as a potter, okay? So he takes the dust of the ground and he forms man. He breathes life into him. That's the creation of Adam. This is the the groom that's going to be enjoying the wedding day coming here in just a moment. But you also see the creation, the special creation of Eve as well. You know, it's curious. We don't know the answer, but you can see here emphatically that God says it's not good for man to be alone. And one of the reasons is because God himself exists in Trinity, three persons, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are made in his image. And so we can't image him if it's simply one person. So it's not good for Adam to be alone, not just because he needs to image God in his plurality, but also because isolation isn't good. Adam needs someone to be with, a companion, a partner. And he can't fulfill the mandate to be fruitful and to multiply without someone around. And I'm always curious, why did God delay? Because it's interesting, he he says, let us create woman, okay, let us create a helper fit for him. And then he pauses, and you'll notice what he does. He says in verse 18, Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them. And you can just see Adam as the, you know, who knows, the, the dogs, the cats, the chihuahuas, the lions, the giraffes, who knows what all the animals were, going, nope, nope, not a helper fit for me. And you can just see him over time maybe kind of getting like, where, when's it going to happen? Who's it going to be? But finally, uh, we see later on in this section, in verse 20 20, at the end, it says, But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Genesis is being very careful to say that the bride and groom are both made by God himself. They are made by God. And here's some things that that means. That means that they both equally possess dignity. Made in the image of God, male and female, equal dignity for both of them. But there's also a depth of humility. Adam, made in the image of God, formed from the dust of the ground. Adam, humankind, you are merely dust. Made in the image of God, dignity. Made from the dust of the ground, humility. And Eve herself made from Adam's side. But there's also not just dignity and not just humility, but also complementarity. This is where we understand it in verse 18. It says, God says, I will make for him a helper fit for him. All right, so this understanding of helper, we're going to talk about here in just a moment. When it says fit for him, it means corresponding to him. Now, in the Hebrew, it can literally mean like opposite to him. It doesn't mean that she's totally different, but it does mean that she corresponds to him in a way that another man couldn't, or if it was just Eve, another woman couldn't, but it was male and female who correspond to one another, and God says, I made them that way. This is good, and at the end of the sixth day, God will look at them as man and woman, male and female, and say, it is very good. Now, I mentioned in the last sermon, one of the things that we're going to do at the end of the series is come back and understand what is a a gospel and biblical view of, of gender and sexuality. But here right now, just to say that Scripture understands gender of male and female as a precious gift that God has given to us that we receive and recognize and not merely something that we can create out of nowhere. God says, these these realities that I'm creating are good and holy and precious and lead to vitality and flourishing, but both are made by God. And male and female, both made in God's image, uniquely image God to others and reflect Him, uniquely as male, uniquely as female, But notice that they're not just made by God. They are made by God for one another. They are made by God for one another. And here's what I want to say. We could spend a whole series on these things, but let me mention some things briefly. When Paul the Apostle in the New Testament looks back on this section, which he quotes multiple times in his letters, in 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Timothy 2, he recognizes that Adam as the husband has, a, has been given a measure of authority to lead his wife. So here's some reasons why Paul says that. He says you'll notice that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, man was not taken from woman, but woman was made from man. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, he talks about not just that woman comes from man physically, but also man comes before woman chronologically. He says the man came first and then the woman. And then he says it explicitly in Ephesians 5. He says the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. He is called to lead. Now here's what's incredible about the biblical understanding of the husband. In the ancient Near East, the the reality of a husband was this. He can tell his wife this in the ancient Near East. You do things for me, and I get things from you. Whereas in the biblical perspective, the role of the husband in his leadership is, I serve you, I sacrifice for you, and I give to you. That's why Jesus radically revolutionizes the role of authority anywhere, but especially in marriage when he says, The Son of Man. And you'll notice he says, even the Son of Man, which was the image of a king in Daniel chapter 7. So here's this king that comes, and Jesus says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served. Our natural understanding of authority, we get to be served. He says, but the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Ephesians 5, it talks about the husband being the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, and he gave himself for her. It's an authority to lead by serving and sacrificing for her vitality, her welfare, her flourishing, whatever it takes to prioritize her need and prioritize her welfare. That's his role in leading. And she, you'll notice, is called a helper. And by no means does Scripture come into this and say, look, therefore she has less dignity, less value. No. Again, image of God, equal in value and dignity. And listen, almost every other time the language of helper is used in Scripture, it's used of God Himself, the one who is strong and wise coming along to help and support his people. So I'd love to explore all those realities more, but the thing is they are made by God for each other in really ways to, to help one another in their various tasks and roles. And let me apply it by this. I say this often when I do weddings. Personal humility leads to marital harmony. Personal humility leads to marital harmony. Now I get that from Philippians chapter 2, when Paul is talking about how Jesus, who had all authority, it says this in John chapter 13, he has all authority, and then he puts on a towel to wash his disciples' feet. He says, I've been given all authority, and I will serve you. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, let each of you consider the needs of others more important than your own. So what would that be like if husband and wife, the husband says, Wife, your needs, more important than my own. As leader, I want to lead by serving and sacrificing so that you are cared for. That's my priority. If the wife says, I'm called to be your helper, and so I want to make your needs more important than my own so that you will flourish and you will thrive. Personal humility, putting the other first, is essential for marital harmony. Damage starts to be done where one or both starts saying, my way, me first. That's what happens. Personal humility leads to relational harmony. The bride and groom made by God for one another. Now here's the thing. I love how in this text, I, I missed this for so many years, the, God is acting like the father of the bride. You see that God creates Eve, and then it says this. It says in verse 22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. You see God creating this this woman with a smile on his face, just so eager to bring her to Adam. And you can see Adam's response in verse 23 as we transition to our second point of the wedding day. It's that the groom now sees his bride coming and he, he busts out in song. And he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You see, he focuses on their similarity, what they have in common, their, their humanity together. And then he says, she shall be called woman. A- again, he's using a measure of his authority. He's, he's naming her. And then he says, because she was taken out of man. Whether Adam knew it at that point or not, he was imaging God. He was reflecting God to Eve. Eve. Because Isaiah chapter 62 says, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so the Lord God rejoices over his people. You see, as God brings Eve to Adam, he sees her and he's just stunned with delight. And he can respond with the first poetry in all of scripture and says, there she is. That's why I've heard some of you say when you go to a wedding, when the bride comes down the aisle, yes, you look at her, but you're really focused on the groom because you see his face. You see how delighted he is. You see how excited he is to finally see his bride coming his way. And it's the wonderful thing. Just like I said, personal humility leads to marital harmony. You can always see this here. He's rejoicing over his bride. Let me mention this, Leonard Bernstein. Some of you have probably heard that name. He was a famous conductor. They asked him, what is the hardest instrument to play? And he quickly says, second fiddle. Everyone wants to play first fiddle, but nobody wants to play second fiddle and play the servant role of the entire orchestra. But without second fiddle, there's no harmony. So right here, as Adam is looking at his wife, he's saying, in humility, I'm committing myself to serve her to be her servant, to not make myself constantly first, but to make myself the servant of my bride. And Eve is coming to him saying, I'll be your helper. I will not demand that I'm first, but I will serve you so that there will also be harmony in our relationship. God is acting like the father of the bride. He's bringing the bride and groom together. And now we see their wedding day in verse 24. In 24, what is happening is a wedding is taking place. The author of Genesis says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now notice a few things here in this text. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. You see how the man is taking the lead to passionately pursue the woman that he loves? And really what the author is showing is when when a wedding takes place, a new priority is happening. A new priority is occurring. And in that culture, family was extremely important. Taking care of mom and dad was extremely important. Taking care of brothers and sisters, extremely important. But as soon as you find a bride, she comes first. Her vitality, her flourishing, you serving her, she comes first. God is showing now, Adam, your role in life is to love and to serve and to pursue her. A new priority. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. And then notice the language that it says next. And hold fast to his wife or hold fast to her. Now, I'd love to go into the intricate details of the language here, but that language of holding fast is what we would call covenant language. It's often used in the Old Testament when God makes promises or a covenant with his people. He will say, I will hold fast to you. I want you to hold fast to me. Sometimes it's translated cling to. I will cling to you. You cling to me. So it's the language not just of a new priority, but also a strong and deep fidelity a faithfulness, a commitment. They're taking vows to each other. That's why historically, almost the entire church has read this passage and said a covenant marriage is taking place here, not a contract. A contract says, I only fulfill my side of the obligation only if you fulfill your side of the obligation. Only until you do X, Y, and Z. Or if you don't do this, then I'm gone. Leave and forsake. And a covenant says, looks straight in the eye of the other and says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Till death do us part. That's what's happening here in this text, this marriage, this, a new priority, a strong fidelity. Now, let me step back and have a little fun. I watch weird YouTube videos. Uh, when, I'm on the, when I'm on the treadmill, I need something to watch, right? And I liked watching this series on welding. And uh, yeah, the welding, taxidermy. My wife is like, Clay, I don't know why you watch what you do. But she's committed to me, a deep fidelity, Right? And so I'm watching this, and so I did not know this, but there's kinds of metals that are what they call non-aerometallurgical. There's your term for the day, okay? You cannot bond them together uh, with fire or anything else. They just will not go together. Two different kinds of metal. You cannot weld them together. But if you stick explosives between them, if you put a layer of powder that's explosive in between these two metals and then cover it with lots of dirt, and then they go, of course, like a mile away, they can take these two massive slabs of metal that would never interact with each other, and they can light it, you can see this huge explosion, and all of a sudden, when they come back, it's one piece of metal that you cannot tear apart. The two pieces of metal have become so intricately intertwined now that they are One. That's so what's amazing. This is what the author of Genesis says when marriage occurs. It says in verse 24 at the end, and they shall become one flesh through the new priority and this deep fidelity, this explosion of love, as it were. Two are made one, inseparable. And, and I say that this is a profound and mysterious unity. And those aren't my words, those are the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, when he's talking about marriage, quotes this verse about a husband leaving his family to be married to his wife so that they will become one flesh. And he says, this mystery is profound. But it is speaking of Christ and the church. The two becoming one flesh, intimate with each other. Yes, yes. Physical intimacy within the boundaries of marriage, becoming one flesh, but emotionally one. Psychologically one, you start to think alike each other. You bring your differences, but also you see how each other's thinks. You become one with each other, emotionally one. You're talking to each other. You're engaging with each other, relating to each other. You are one now. And that's why Jesus, when he quotes this in the Gospel of Luke, he quotes this passage, and he says, what God has brought together. When I stand before a couple on their wedding day and they make those vows and they kiss one another in some mysterious, profound way, God himself is making the two one. And Paul says it's a profound mystery. And because they are one, Paul says, now, husband, take care to nurture and cherish your bride. Because Jesus nurtures and cherishes his people. Wife, nurture and cherish your husband just as Jesus nurtures and cherishes his bride, the church. Now let me mention this. This is usually a time where a preacher steps back and hopefully following in line with Jesus and Paul and the prophets and scripture, use an illustration to make the point, a story that makes it meaningful and memorable. But here, I need no illustration. Because marriage is the illustration. Now, here's the thing. When God creates marriage, he didn't create it and then say, you know, that that shows what my love is like. I should use marriage to tell people what, what my love for others is like. No, actually, Paul says it's a mystery because beforehand, before God created anything, he said, what can I create to display to the world how extravagant and enormous my love is for my people. Marriage is what God thought about ahead of time, that marriage is a precious reality that points to the grace of God. And in many ways, God is saying, you see when the bride is walking down the aisle on her wedding day, and you see the face of the groom filled with delight, It's as if God is saying, you multiply that by infinity and stretch it to eternity, and you still only get a small glimpse of the depths of my love for my people. Here Jesus leaves his father to fulfill his covenant vows to his bride so that through the cross he might become one with his people. Now, I want to be very careful to say this this morning. If you're single, if you're divorced, a widower, one, Scripture enters into those times of loneliness, those feelings of hurt and pain. And Scripture says that, that marriage is a precious reality. So it really holds it in high honor. But it also says it's also just a pointer. It's a pointer to a greater, more wonderful reality of Christ's love for his people with whom he is one with when they look to him by faith. And so even if we don't uh, engage or aren't in a wedding or a marriage, Scripture says you can still feel the experience because Jesus himself is the perfect bridegroom of whom marriage points to It points to the deeper reality of Christ's relationship with his people. And let me mention last the marriage that's taking place. You can see this in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now let me mention this just real quick. When it comes to the marriage, it is a monumental and mutual task. Monumental because it's, hey, push the boundaries of the garden all over the globe. Subdue and have dominion. Invest your lives, engage your world, your spheres of influence in the various seasons of life. It's such a monumental calling. Adam can't do it alone. Oh, he needs his bride. And Eve can't do it alone. Oh, she needs her husband. It's a mutual task because it's so monumental. And in that task, there's going to be hard days, hard seasons, There's going to be times, actually, believe it or not, husbands and wives argue with each other. Liz and I have argued with each other. We've been in bed at night when we can almost barely talk to each other. And it's often when things are really hard or for some reason we're arguing that one or both of us will look at each other and simply say this, we are in this together. I am with you. I am for you. And you are not alone. And that's about all we can say sometimes. But it's a mutual and monumental task. And we just look at each other and say, you're not alone. We're in it together. And it's also a breathtakingly beautiful reality. Look how it says that they were naked and not ashamed. Eden says this, that when they're both in Eden, here's all that I am, all that I have, and I am all yours. They are exhaustively known and deeply loved, but shame says, here is some of who I am. Here is some of what I have, and some of me is yours. But there are parts of me I will hide from you because they will make you turn your face away from me and leave. Shame brings accusation, pushes you towards isolation because we so deeply fear rejection from the one we love. The people who are reading this text to begin with live in a post-Eden world, and so do all of us. We do not know that world where there was no shame. We know the world of sin, and we know the world of shame. And here's the wonderful thing. Paul says this text is about Adam and Eve, but most deeply it's about Jesus and his love for his bride. And he sees all of our shame, all of it. He knows us exhaustively, and he does not turn his face away. In fact, you can see compassion and grace in his eyes moving towards you, and it's as if you're sitting there going, me? You don't want to see this. Yes, I do. I see it. And he still heads towards you. He actually absorbs that shame on the cross. Hebrews chapter 12 says he scorned the shame. He shamed shame. He made shame the isolated one and the rejected one so that his bride could feel the acceptance Of her king bridegroom. And even in the midst of our shame, when he comes to rescue us, he looks us in the eye and he makes this promise I see it all, and I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. That is the bridegroom we have in the gospel. The bride and groom, their wedding day, and their marriage. Let me close with this illustration from all your favorite movie, meet Joe Black. Brad Pitt, Anthony Hopkins. Brad Pitt goes to one of the characters, um, Joe Black, his name is Quince. He looks at Quince. Quince is kind of this shy guy, doesn't have everything together. And, you know, Joe Black says, I find myself a little bit confused. And Quince says, yeah, about what? He says, love. And Quince says, man, I got problems of my own. And Joe says, well, you love Allison, don't you, Allison, his wife? And he says, yes, I do. How did you meet? Well, I was this world-class loser. She was this happy girl, and for some reason she took me in. But she loves you. How do you know that she loves you? Because she knows the worst things about me, and it's okay. It's like you know each other's deepest, darkest secrets, and it's okay. Secrets? Yes, and then you're free. Free? Free? He says you're free, you're really free to love, to love each other completely, totally, no fear. So there's nothing you don't know about each other, and it's okay. Let's translate that into gospeline. Let's say that Joe Black, someone who is not a believer, comes to you, a believer. Well, I find myself a little confused. You say, yeah, about what? Love. Well, I, even as a believer, I have problems of my own. Well, you love Jesus, don't you? Well, I do. How did you meet him? Well, I was this world-class sinner, and he was the king of kings, and for some reason he took me in. He loves you? How do you know he loves you? Because he knows the worst things about me, and it's okay because of the cross. He knows my deepest, darkest secrets, my worst sins, and he still embraces me. Deepest, darkest secrets, worst sin? Yes, and then you're free. You're free to love him and others totally. Just no fear. So there's nothing he doesn't know about me. And it's okay forever. God says, that's what my relationship with my people is like. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story of a bride and groom on their wedding day and to see what their marriage is to look like. Father, would you help us see how that points to the reality of the gospel Christ and your love for us, who scorned the cross, embraced our shame, and took our sin and shame away from us. We ask that you would help us know the depth of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.